This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by Microsoft Security. Level up your cyber defenses in the era of AI. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tim Starks. I'm the author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter at the Washington Post. Uh, Today, we have two segments on cloud security. Later, we're going to hear from uh, James Lewis. He's the renowned cyber policy expert and uh, director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. But first, I am pleased to be joined by Jay Chowdhury, CEO and founder of cloud security company Zscaler. Jay, welcome to Washington Post Live. Tim, thank you for the opportunity. So why don't we start with uh, some basics. What exactly is the cloud? And when we hear that companies are moving there, what does that mean? So cloud is a way of running applications and services that we need to do our business. In the past, we have to buy computers that can run our applications. It's almost like having power generator in every home. But then the market said, huh, why should everyone buy a power generator? Why shouldn't we build a utility service so that we can simply plug in the wall socket and get power? Computing as a utility is essentially like light, electricity as a service or water as a service. Makes total sense. That's a good, that's a good metaphor. I've not heard that myself before. So, so tell me, what are the benefits of the cloud then? So benefits, if each of us try to manage our own computers, just like if each of us are trying to manage our power generators, it's a lot of work. It's unnecessary stuff. There should be a service. There should be a company that builds all this stuff. And we pay for what we use. And we use what we need. It's logical. When any new technology comes, it starts as a cottage industry then over time, it becomes a professionally managed service. So cloud computing to me is a very natural thing. It had to happen. And the benefits are simple. You don't need to be expert in figuring out computers. How big of computers do you need? When do you need to upgrade them? You focus on doing your business work and let someone else take care of it. Take any of these companies out there, whether it's, consumer products company like Coca-Cola or it's United Airlines, they should focus on their business and they consume computing as a service without having to worry about buying, deploying, managing, upgrading computers. Let's talk about the potential, having established that, let's talk about some of the potential uh, risks here. Uh, how does this, how does the transition to the cloud uh, change or shape cyber vulnerabilities and, and does it create more risk? It changes. It doesn't necessarily create new, but the way we need to secure fundamentally changes. Think of the following way. If you're trying to secure your data center where your computer is sitting, that's one approach. In that case, you can put a fence around the data center, or maybe I use a metaphor of a moat around the castle so no bad guys can get inside the castle. But If applications move out of the data center, they could be sitting in the cloud as SaaS applications like Office 365 or Salesforce, or you're building applications in Azure, AWS, uh, these clouds, then they need to be protected differently. The notion of castle and mode by building firewalls around your data center and your branch office is no longer relevant. Security needs to be done differently. And that's the challenge 
we have to face. We have to come up with different techniques to do it better, different ways. Okay, so everybody who works here at The Post, including myself, uh, we're, we're pretty familiar with Zscaler because we, we use it uh, to authenticate our, idea, our identity via uh, the service yeah. every day. So for those who may not be as familiar with Zscaler, uh, what, <laughs> what is Zscaler and what are some of the ways it helps secure the cloud? So Tim, I started this company in 2008. I'm a lucky product of American dream. America is an amazing country. You can come from wherever with smart and hard work. You can do all kinds of stuff. I had done four startups, three of them in the cyber world. So I was seeing the transition to cloud happening. I was seeing more information on the internet. I seen Salesforce of the world coming out there. We are all mobile. And I said, if applications move out of the data centers and users move out of your branch offices and start working everywhere, where are we going to put those firewalls? There's no place for firewalls in all these clouds. So let's reimagine security. And the reimagined security was, since you can't build a motor on a castle with firewalls and VPN, let's build a switchboard. Almost like a phone switchboard, where a user comes to the switchboard and says, I want to talk to person X. And the switchboard person says, who are you? Validate your identity. Are you allowed to go or talk to this person? If yes, I'll make the connection. Otherwise, I would not make the connection. So you're not getting inside the building. You're not getting inside the applications. It's a one-to-one -one secure connection. And later on, it became zero trust architecture, which said, trust no one, only provide limited access to what people need. That's really what I started out with. When I started early on, when I talked to CISOs, it's funny. Seven of the 10 will say, Jay, you're crazy. Two will say, a great idea, but not for me. And one will say, what a wonderful idea, I'll work with you. So a lot of evangelism, it started out, but now it has gone mainstream because too many companies that had relied upon traditional firewalls and VPNs, it, they're getting breached. It has to stop, we must stop it. Yeah, okay. We, we have a, a, I'm happy to say we have a question from the audience. Uh, we've talked a little bit so far about corporate uh, cyber vulnerabilities, but the question we have is about how individuals can keep their own data and identity safe. This is Ted Herman from Maryland. He wants to know, what can we do on our own personal level? Yes, consumers are getting compromised too. It, this thing is happening across the board. The most common attack starts with phishing. Okay. Often they send you the most common attack. They want to send you a, an email that says, please update your bank credentials. They want to steal your identity. So using that, they can get into your bank account and try to take money away from it. So look for emails to make sure they're coming from your bank or they may be coming from a different place, but the thing looks like a bank. That's one thing, simple thing you can do and you should look for it, though it's hard. They're getting more and more sophisticated. In fact, they'll send a statement in the case of enterprises, they send emails from Jay to some of my employees to say, do this. They send an email from my HR head or my CFO. But in consumers, banking is number one. Number two, you know, your credit checks. People can do credit checks if they steal your identity. By default, you should make sure nobody can check your credits. 
unless you call them to say open for credit checks. Those are two basic things I think one should pay attention to. Okay, so there's a there's a chance that your answer will be similar to this next question. Um, you mentioned the most common type of cyber attacks. From where you're from where you're sitting at your perch, is that also the most worrisome kind of cyber uh, cyber attack that, that companies face? And 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 from whom uh, do the, the kind of cyber attacks you worry about the most? So what I talked about phishing is the way to start and get in. Okay, there are multiple stages before a company or a user gets attacked. Take, for example, consumer. The real attack is when someone steals money from the bank. Okay. But to get there, they need to go through step one, step two, and step three. Step one is figuring all your credentials, and that's what do, they do with phishing. So that's why you can't just depend upon one thing. Take, for example, even banks too. Banks are getting more sophisticated. It used to be you type in your password and ID. Not enough. Now, banks need to get better. Sometimes for making big money transfers, they'll send you a soft code on your cell phone. So now you need to enter the code because they have your bank account. They have your phone number. That's good protection. Now, banks are getting more sophisticated. They say, huh, if I see you coming from Spain or maybe Iran trying to do something, I'm not going to transfer a lot of money. I'm going to look for and say, I'm going to double check with you. So the multiple protection, multiple steps are needed. There's no single silver bullet. But many times, attacks start with what we call social engineering. Social engineering means they try to trick you to say, reveal some credentials or something that you shouldn't be doing. But that doesn't mean things are done. Then there's the next gate and the next gate. For example, take, take our driver's license. People would try to really force them. Now states are getting more sophisticated. Driver's license are becoming more sophisticated. They can be forced, you see. When we go through international airports, they check retina, they can check fingerprints. Those become additional things to validate that wrong person can't get access to wrong applications. Those are the type of things Zskiller does for its employees, uh, sorry, for its customers. When customers have to access applications, rather than getting inside the company network using firewalls and VPN, then they're in, we are actually, we can say the following, a simple application, I do a simple check. But if you want to access a mission critical financial applications, I'm going to ask for two or three things before I connect. So these are a number of sophisticated techniques that have to be done. One of the things we do is, what we call behavior analysis. This is where AIML technology comes in. We're looking for the behavior or transactions that have been done in the past. And look at that, we say, ah, oh, this behavior is unusual. This doesn't sound right. So now we can, rather than transferring money, we can stop and send a verification to the customer. Those are the type of things that are helping us. But the most important thing that's helping us is, not letting inside the company network where they can go everything. Like getting inside the company network means allowing you to get inside your corporate headquarters and allow you to wander wherever you want to wander. That's what we try to fix with our zero trust architecture. Let's keep, keep talking about those customers a little bit. Your clients, uh, what do you hear from them, from CIOs about their major cybersecurity concerns and needs? 
Yes, so the biggest thing customers are worried about is what's known as lateral threat movement. It seemed like a technical term, but here's a simple example. If I try to come to see you at your headquarters, they're gonna stop me at the reception, they're gonna check my ID, they're gonna give me a badge. And imagine if they said, Jay, go to seventh floor room 23, that's where your meeting is, no escort needed. So I can go in, I can wander around to go to any door, any room that's open, snoop around and leave. That's what happens in today's security, what's known as network security based on firewalls and VPNs. Now, the right approach should be, a receptionist checks my ID, gives me a badge and says, Jay, stop. You'll be escorted to room 23 and you don't even need to know what room your meeting is in. Your meeting happens, we escort you out. And if you're dealing with defense department, they're gonna say, we're gonna blindfold you and take to the meeting room. And once the meeting is that done, we blindfold you back and take you out. That's fundamentally the core principle of zero trust architecture. One-to-one -one access after verification. So our if we don't do that, once a bad guy gets in by stealing VPN credentials, they're on the network, they move laterally, they find high value applications and they encrypt them, then they ask for ransom and they also steal the data. So our job is to eliminate this kind of movement on the network so they can't even reach to the application even if credentials are stolen. Users will fall for some of these social engineering attacks. It's impossible to make sure then they don't fall for it. But making sure with next steps not to let them go in is where we play an important role. Yeah, a topic we hear a lot about these days, obviously, is artificial intelligence. How is the boom in AI uh, impacting the demand for cloud security and, and Zscaler's kind of service? Just like any big new technology, it has two sides in it. It has a wonderful side, it has a dangerous side, right? A, a knife in a kitchen is a wonderful tool, but it can be very dangerous. So AIML is making it extremely hard to get information, especially generative AI makes it so easy to generate content, but AI can be used in a very bad way. Let me give you an example of generative AI that my research team did early on. For a given company, Tell me all the firewalls and VPNs that have certain vulnerabilities. Simple question. It could have taken three days to find that information. Now you can get it in less than two minutes, less than a minute. That's an example of how bad guys are going to do easily some of these attacks. Now, companies like Zscaler, we want to fight AI with AI. Now we can use AI ML to really parse through tons of data and figure out some of the things we couldn't figure out. We can find, we can create what I call attack graph. That means if a bad guy came, compromised one machine, then it moved to the next step, the next step, I can essentially plot the steps taken. I can predict the next three steps and tell my customers to really change certain configuration, lock on certain things so you don't get compromised. So with 375 billion transactions we see, we see tons of data. In that data is tons of telltale signs that AI ML engineers from Zscaler is working on. So my personal mission is to make sure we can predict the breach, we can prevent the breach. And we are in a better position because 
like a switchboard, we see all communication. And before any bad thing happens, reconnaissance happens, we see that reconnaissance that can allow us to do some of this cool stuff with AIML technology that we could not do before. Yeah. Um, this is probably going to be, this was, should be my last question. I'm going to combine it sort of two in one. Um, we are on the precipice of leaving 2023 and heading into 2024. Uh, what do you see as the most significant developments of the past year? And what do you see as the, as the most significant trend or development coming in the cybersecurity landscape? In 2023, we saw a lot of hype around AIML. Every new technology, tons and tons of hype. Lots of companies are playing with it. I think in 2024, a lot of this thing will become real. The combination of AIML technology combined with zero trust architecture those two technology can help us make much safer. Enterprises need to become much safer because all business is happening online. We all depend upon it. And that's why we are working with over 40% of the Fortune 500 companies. They trust us, they depend upon us. We are proud to serve US government. 12 of the 15 cabinet level agencies are working with Zscaler. And, and for me, it's not just the business. It is a mission. We need to make sure we defeat these bad guys and protect commerce that's happening online. All right. That's a pretty good place to end, I think. Uh, I, I, I have to say, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on everything we talked about here. Um, so we're out of time, so we'll have to, like I said, we'll leave it there. Jay Chowdhury, thanks so much for joining us today. Tim, I really appreciate the opportunity. Up next, we'll hear from James Lewis. After this, Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello and welcome. I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief, a national security-focused news organization. It's my pleasure to be here today to talk for a few minutes about artificial intelligence, something all of us are talking about, and in particular, the intersection between AI and cyberspace. Joining me for a quick conversation on this is Mike McCarter, Principal Group Manager of Microsoft's Third Party Risk and Fraud Division. Mike, welcome. It's good to see you. Hi, Suzanne. Great to, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I wanted to start the conversation off by getting your sense of how the threat landscape is changing and how, in particular, threat actors are changing their tactics given this new AI world we're living in. They are, Suzanne. They're getting more advanced, um, not just phishing, but uh, smishing with text messages on SMS and vishing with voicemail and uh, social engineering tactics are obviously evolving as well. Um, and what we're seeing is the threat actors are using AI to develop more compelling messages uh, with text and imagery that are in some cases augmented by AI uh, or generated by AI and um, things like you know, misspellings and generic greetings and bad grammar, those techniques for spotting fraud are actually going away and we're seeing the quality of the attacks increase uh, as threat actors harness those new technologies. Um, we, we have more details that you can get on Microsoft Security Insider for what threat actors are doing, uh, but it is, um, it is changing and evolving. 
it is getting a little bit more worrisome um, for folks like me who now have to be a little bit more careful before you click on that link that looks like it's coming from someone you know. Um, I'm wondering how you think security professionals need to be thinking about this. Mike, what can they do? Well, it's still about data protection and making sure your data is private and controlled end to end. That's one of the fundamentals and protecting your resources. Cloud subscriptions, for instance, are very valuable. If your account gets compromised, those can be misused and it gets very, very expensive. Um, having an AI roadmap and leveraging zero trust is a, a zero trust strategy is still fundamental. Things like multi-factor authentication, uh, also very fundamental. Uh, those can protect you from up to 90, over 99% of uh, account compromises especially when you move beyond SMS for multi-factor authentication into things like uh, mobile auth apps, um, Windows Hello, obviously we're, we're big fans of that, uh, actual hardware generated tokens in some cases. Um, so having that zero trust mindset in your organization is key and um, moving beyond that into conditional access policies where you can improve your security posture um, by having dynamic uh, risk signals and licensing and usage, um, allowing you to change your threat, land, your um, your posture, uh, in, ad in, in by adapting to the threat landscape, um, retiring uh, dormant uh, subscriptions and accounts, and uh, making sure your employees are are trained on uh, what to look for. Um, employees are always our first and last lines of defense. Um, and then, of course, there's time-tested services like, um, you know, advanced threat protection or spoof intelligence in front of your inbox, um, as well as the new and emerging technologies like co-pilots. Yeah, let me stick on the people theme for just a minute, Mike, and ask you, how do you see the roles of cybersecurity teams changing in the future because of AI? Well, definitely the need to stay on top of the latest technology and, and of course the adversary tactics that we're seeing out there. Um, but the technology is is making it easier to um, fight against these attackers, um, even as they scale. Um, on the adversary side, we're seeing things like phishing as a service and um, even GPT models for fraud. Um, so the defenders need to be uh, flexible and agile as well and use those latest tools. A lot of experimentation across uh, the different layers of your defense in depth strategy and making sure you understand the data that's coming from those experiments and doubling down on the things that work. Um, actually, we, in a recent study, we rolled out our co-pilot to um, new and career analysts, security analysts, and uh, Forty-four percent of them had significant improvements in the accuracy of their response, um, and were twenty-six percent faster across the whole population on all the tasks they were performing. Um, and, and my team, in particular, rolled out um, a capability that um, actually used an AI-generated risk score to determine if users coming at us uh, crossed a threshold of risk that required extra friction. Um, extra verification, and we used um, a technology that lights up their camera and looks at their government ID and really determines are they who they say they are. Um, so those kinds of things give us extra uh, power. And when we connect the data points uh, uh, and look at all the different signals coming at us, 
we can catch a lot of what others miss um, and using uh, you know insights that draw from a vast uh, set of signals to cut through noise and uh, detect cyber threats before they cause any harm. Uh, we can use that this uh, to reinforce our security posture, and I think that'll become more and more important in the future for all security professionals. Yeah, for sure. I don't think this is something people can afford to ignore, um, as you mentioned. Mike McCarter, Principal Group Manager for Microsoft's Third Party Risk and Fraud Division. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to those who have been with us earlier. Uh, for those just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tim Starks, author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter here at The Post. I'm now joined by James Lewis, uh, Senior Vice President and Director of Technologies uh, Program at CSIS. James Lewis, welcome. Um, let's start with uh, some very recent reporting from my Post colleagues about the Chinese military ramping up its cyber offense against the US over the, the past year, particularly around critical infrastructure. Does this represent a continuation or escalation of Chinese cyber attacks against the US? How should we be thinking about this? unless you're thinking about doing something. So it's a not a good indicator. It's ramping up. The Chinese have always loitered around critical infrastructure. So have the Russians and the Iranians. But the fact that the PLA is now so deeply embedded into so many infrastructures is, is worrisome. And more broadly, how would you uh, characterize China's cybersecurity and capabilities? And is the Biden administration doing enough to deter Chinese cyber espionage? Well, one of the interesting things has been to watch the Chinese improve over the years. And now they uh, people used to say, well, they, they were not the best. They weren't at the level of the FSB or MI5 or uh, GCHQ, you know, any of the foreign uh, entities or NSA for that matter. The Chinese have improved remarkably. They are now, if not a peer, a near peer. And that makes them much more dangerous. Uh, they've organized, they've put more attention into it just practice alone, and they practice every day. Practice makes it better. So um, we have a new set of risks when it comes to China. It used to be espionage. Now they're poking around on critical infrastructure. This administration, building on the work of the previous two administrations, has done a pretty good job of trying to meet this, but we're kind of behind the curve because infrastructure is so vulnerable. So many positive developments in the last couple of years, but still a long ways to go. Can you talk about then, elaborate on that, what, what the positive developments are and what the long way to go part is? Sure, and I point to two documents that everyone should be familiar with. The first is uh, Executive Order 14028, the Executive Order on Cybersecurity. It builds on an earlier Obama administration executive order and helps create the regulatory structure, the governance structure for better cybersecurity. And related to that, the National Cybersecurity Strategy, which um, really took sort of a new approach. I mean, one of the things I noticed in the strategy was it, it never used the word deterrence, right? That's because in cyberspace, we haven't deterred anything. Um, it's looking at how you actually organize the government, organize the agencies to get them to work together. And the executive order starts to expand the remit of regulatory agencies. Still a problem, we don't have an overarching cybersecurity law, 
We don't have a privacy law, which is a major drawback in the US. But uh, those two documents point to a good degree, good degree of progress in this administration. One other thing people may not have seen as much, I think you've reported on it, the counter, counter ransomware initiative, which yeah. is at this point, 48 countries getting together, uh, led by the US to talk about how to deal with ransomware, which is not only the crime du jour, but very damaging from an economic perspective. Okay, so where does the cloud fit into this? Uh, can we can you talk about the cloud significance in relation to uh, specifically U.S.-China relations and competition? The terrain for competition in cyberspace has changed uh, because the cloud has become so central to business and economic activity. And the cloud is just it's think of it as data centers, right? Think of it as remote computing. Think of it as software as a service. All of those things are growth areas for business, and of course, if you're a criminal you're gonna go where the money is. If you're a state, you're gonna go where the data is. And that would describe the cloud. So um, thinking about how to make the cloud more secure, one of the um, surprises, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was, is our foreign adversaries depend on uh, the cloud, on cloud service providers that we all know, American cloud service providers, to provide the infrastructure for their attack capabilities. It's not 100 percent. It's more true for criminals, but finding that cloud is now both the infrastructure that undergirds the global digital economy and the infrastructure that unfortunately also undergirds cybercrime has made it a potential area of attention. It's also an area of competition. I was talking to some Huawei executives a while ago and they said, look, your, your U.S. measures on 5G hurt us, hurt our bottom line but we expect to fully recover in the future by focusing on cloud and 5G. So cloud is the playing field now for competition when it comes to cybersecurity. And, and this is something you've written about. Um, in an analysis for, analysis for CSIS, uh, you write, quote, the policy framework for cloud competition revolves around two concepts, development and sovereignty. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, the first is that when you go to other countries, uh, they don't want to hear about the Chinese threat and they don't want to hear about the geopolitical competition. They want to hear how this helps their economy. And that's probably most of the countries in the world. So when you show up, uh, you have to talk about development if you want to get any traction. And of course, the old joke, as you, as you know, Tim, is the Americans show up with a lecture, the Chinese show up with money, right? We are going to have to pay more attention to development as a central theme for most of the world if we're going to get them to cooperate on cybersecurity. The resurgence of sovereignty, it's been one of the things that has happened in the last five years or so, and it's not that's not just the developing world, that's not just the global south, if we can use that phrase. Um, it's Europe, it's China, it's Brazil. People now care about, and it's a reaction in some way to the success of globalization. Um, after the Cold War, the US created a global framework Congratulations, um, but countries have begun to back away from and say, I need to protect my sovereign interests. I need to protect my, my national sovereignty. So sovereignty is the political backdrop now for cybersecurity, just as development is the political backdrop for cooperation in cybersecurity. There, there are some similarities and parallels to a, to a battle that's been fought uh, on the issue of 5G. Uh, trustworthy 5G telecom infrastructure, as you've written about. Um, 
What lessons from cloud competition can be can be gleaned from the 5G battle? The the ones that we've been talking about, Tim, the 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 importance of development. I mean, when you go to most countries in the world, uh, they don't want to hear you know China bad. China is bad, and most of them know that, but they really want to know how are you going to help them get economic growth. Uh, that's one lesson we learned with 5G. The other lesson lesson we learned is that the emphasis has to be on building trust, on building trustworthy networks and trustworthy devices. And that is something that's a little easier to do because you can say, um, what makes a country trustworthy? Why should you trust their technology? You can do some pretty basic tests. Do they have rule of law? Um, can the government do whatever it wants? Uh, have they a record of uh, criminal activity? And that sort of basic approach to trust is one of the best lessons to learn, not just for cloud, but really for other areas as well. In 5G, there was agreement that countries should probably buy from trustworthy providers. It took a while to get that, but we've got it now. Now we need to expand that understanding of the need for trustworthy providers uh, to other areas, including the cloud. Okay, so given all those uh, parallels and, and where the, the, the lines of competition are, can you give us a sense of where uh, competition for the cloud market stands today, and what are the geopolitical implica implications uh, are for the rules-based international order? Sure, and so the, the good news is that U.S. companies, uh, US, the big U.S. cloud service providers, um, they have a, a better offerings. They have a strong market presence, particularly in key regions like Southeast Asia. Uh, so the U.S. is holding its own, but uh, as I said before, the Chinese have identified cloud as a core infrastructure. We're building the global infrastructure for the digital economy. And the person who builds and controls that infrastructure will have enormous benefit. The Chinese want that benefit. We should want it too, and we're sort of figuring that out now. Um, but the U.S. is doing okay. The problem is in the development side, which is particularly in uh, in Africa particularly in uh, some parts of uh, Southeast Asia, um, China's willingness to provide economic assistance uh, is giving them a bit of an advantage. And an area to look at that we, we may have assumed was safe is uh, Latin America. You know, Latin America is not our backyard anymore. Uh, perhaps it never was, but China's their biggest trade partner. The Chinese have tremendous influence. The Chinese show up with money. Um, so we're in a competition in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. I'd say we've lost the competition in Africa, but cloud service providers, because it's the backbone of the digital economy, will be something that we're going to focus on. Revisiting and revising a question I asked you earlier about the Biden administration's approach to China, um, how would you characterize the Biden administration's approach to these more cloud-specific issues? So what we're seeing is a uh, is the last few years have seen a real transition, and you, you of course, cover this, uh, a real transition in how we think about cybersecurity. There's more emphasis on regulation than there used to be, and so people are looking at cloud regulation. Uh, not always popular with some of the big service providers, and one of the big debates is over something called Know Your Customer, KYC, um, but an emphasis on maybe we need to regulate, uh, a recognition that we need to show up not just with lectures, but with money. And the Biden administration is changing the approach to development. For a long time, we didn't have to worry about development. I mean, we were the only superpower. And so we could um, we could show up and, you know, 
focus on social goals and we have to reorient assistance to security goals like we did in the Cold War. Um, they're making progress on that. Um, domestically, you know, as you know from your work, uh, a lot of effort by CISA, by NSA, by ONCD. So it's it's definitely a work in progress. We definitely have a long ways to go. But I think this administration has done more than um, any of its predecessors to improve cybersecurity. Don't don't take that to the bank. You still have a lot of work, but they've done more than anyone else. So yeah, revisiting your analysis uh, and any steps you haven't talked about yet and that you talk about in that analysis, uh, about what what uh, what steps the OSHA should take? Can you walk Can you walk through any of that, that you haven't covered already? Sure. The one thing that I think people are beginning to be uh, aware of is that we're 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 seeing the emergence of a, a single global network, uh, and we're talking about different nodes of it. It's it's going to be an IP based network, and it will be satellites, and undersea cables, uh, fiber optic, five G, and cloud, and the country that builds this, of course, will have a tremendous market and it will have some degree of political influence. So as we move towards this single integrated network, problems that used to be considered different silos are now now beginning to merge, like spectrum management. Get that wrong, we could lose all the, all the progress we made on getting 5G out of networks. Um, cloud and development, um, we need to come up with a better line for cloud and development. But I'd say it's the, the, the move towards a globally global ubiquitous connectivity based, based on cloud, 5G, and IP networks that will shape the policy in the future. And it's one that people are slowly beginning to adjust to. I mean, the federal organization, this is something you write about too. We have, we have stovepipes. They're better at communicating across those boundaries, but um, maybe the world doesn't work the way uh, it did 20 years ago. And, that's a fair question. Do we need a standalone agency for cybersecurity? Do we need a standalone agency for digital uh, digital communications? Uh, right now it's commerce, it's DHS, it's ONCD. We might need to rethink federal government organization a little bit. This is kind of related to that. Um, there's been some discussion I've heard lately about the idea of how the cloud is treated vis-a-vis -vis definitions of critical infrastructure. Do you, do you have a sense of, of whether the way that works now is, is good or whether there needs to be some, some more specific kind of carving out? Well, I think the question is, what do you get from calling a cloud a critical infrastructure? Uh, there shouldn't be any doubt that it's a critical infrastructure. And so the question is not, uh, do we call it that? Do we, how many do we have now? I forget, 17, 19. We have, we have immense numbers of critical infrastructures, but this infrastructure really is critical. Yes. Calling it critical, what does that make different? What would we do differently? And so I think that's the next step is say, how do we want to regulate the cloud? How do we want to encourage uh, economic growth? How do we want to assign responsibilities among agencies? And it's sort of a no brainer for ONCD and, and, and CISA, uh, but they need to work out what exactly it's going to be. If cloud becomes a critical infrastructure, what does that mean we're going to do differently? Mm -hmm. You write that the cloud has not received the degree of attention from the policy community it deserves. We've obviously heard a lot of about uh, from the policy community about AI, about chips. Uh, can you connect the dots? Uh, why does cloud competition matter for those other vital technologies? Well, because cloud underpins all the other things. You can't do AI without cloud. Uh, you can't do manufacturing without cloud. 
Uh, you can't do robotics without cloud. And frankly, you can't do self-driving cars should they ever actually work. You can't do self-driving cars without cloud. This is the fundamental infrastructure for the digital revolution. And it's in a way it's invisible, in a way people don't know. Most people use the cloud. I think they realize that now. But if you're using Gmail or uh, Microsoft or Netflix, that's the cloud. But consumer cloud is not the issue. It's it's the enterprise activities and it undergirds uh, all of the things that we see like AI, like quantum computing. Uh, cloud is the, the basic infrastructure for the emerging technologies that we're all interested in. Yeah, the, one of the things that, that people are talking about quite specifically today on, on a different sort of subject, um, not entirely different, uh, is Russia's latest cyber attack on, against Ukraine, uh, targeting one of the country's main mobile and internet providers. What does that latest attack tell you about Putin's strategy and perhaps the message he's trying to send? What, what stands out about the latest attack to you? Well, the, the first thing is that there's a, there's a lesson there and it relates back to sovereignty, which is people say, my data is sovereign, I need to have it controlled and it has to be located within my national borders. The Ukrainians said that uh, right up until the day of the Russian attack when they realized they needed to move it qu as quickly as possible uh, outside their borders into the cloud hosted by service providers outside Ukraine. So we know that cloud is actually use of the cloud, effective use of the cloud is an effective defensive measure. Uh, and the Ukrainians have proven that. Um, the Russians aren't giving up. I, sort of, a lot of us, at least I certainly hope they would give up. I mean, they're, they're not going to win. Um, our Congress definitely sends mixed messages. And so Putin's going to say, I'm going to keep trying. He he doesn't care about losses. He doesn't care about the damage to the Russian economy. Um, he's going to keep pushing in the hopes that there'll be that magic moment where the Americans and the Europeans kind of back off and the, one of the cyber attacks actually works. So what it tells me is that the, the Russians, if anything, have become uh, more convinced that if they stay this out, they'll win. I, I hope this isn't a mean last question to ask on and ask you to do quickly, but how can or should the US respond to what's happening and, and should it pursue a more aggressive cyber strategy against Russia? This has been one of the problems with cybersecurity now for, for years is that, uh, uh, and to use a, a similar example, um, how do you respond to Chinese espionage? We haven't figured that out, right? And there's risk in using offensive cyber operations because they have a risk of escalating into a larger conflict. Uh, of bringing the conflict up to a kinetic level. But if we don't do something more serious than sending the occasional nasty note, um, the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans aren't going to stop, right? So figuring out how to use uh, offensive cyber operations uh, to create accountability, uh, that's the, the word of the week in cybersecurity. How do you create accountability in cyberspace? And I think offensive cyber operations have to be part of that. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, James Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.